The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. You can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53, please. As I shared last week, um, I get to return to Ethiopia. I have four of my former students from Bethlehem Seminary, along with some pastors, heading with me. Uh, we're going to be training 65 church leaders once again. This is the last of the uh, courses in Training Leaders International's three-year program for non-formal education. And so there's been a group of 65 church leaders that have been coming three times a year for the last three years to be equipped. And we'll be teaching them through the last of the courses, this time teaching through 2 Timothy. And so I'm deeply looking forward to that. And then as many of you know that um, the Lord has really put it on my, my heart, the heart of my wife, that, that our care for the orphan and widow um, is supposed to be active in the Horn of Africa. So the Lord sparked Ethiopia into our heart when we brought home three children from there, our three youngest kids out of our six. And uh, so over the last three years especially, we've been intentionally pursuing um, prayerfully how do we help the church in Ethiopia not only train its leaders, but care for its poor. And um, so we are linking arms this round with a specific mission organization called Children's Hope Chest. And um, I'm looking in to see if this may be a partnership that could be long-term. But as we visit four different children's ministry care points, um, we're just looking for monies if you're interested to give. Uh, this came in a in a letter, in an email this week, if you're on the email list, uh, we just want to be able to take fresh fruit to every care point with us. Uh, one of the spots has 200 kids present. Um, we're going to be getting just seven bags of, of groceries, staples for seven specific families. Uh, the mission ball on the left, soccer ball that's just loaded with scripture and gospel text. Uh, but we can get it in Amharic, which is the national language for Ethiopia. So we're going to be taking balls. The shoe that grows, you can see the Velcro there, durable, um, but it, it expands. And there's three different sizes, but each shoe is able to last a, a growing child up to three years. So they're specifically designed for um, this type of ministry. Every ball is 20 bucks. The shoes are 15. We're hoping to take 50 shoes with us. Um, then school supplies and hygiene products for the different ministry points that are just serving these families, um, trying to minister to the kids. And then uh, this is my Ethiopian son that we were never able to bring home, Chernet, and his biological mom and his brand new baby sister, Hikma. And so just trying to... Um, send him to school, and which is uh, 
financially not possible for their family without this support and, uh, and medical needs that they have as a family. So if the Lord leads you to participate in that help, um, just contact myself or Teresa. That'd be great. Jason, I, Thank you. Thanks, John. Father, we pray that your spirit would be on every fraction of every inch of this trip to and fro, that you would be present in every conversation, Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> I'm still with you for a few weeks. March 15 is when we take off. It's a Thursday. Isaiah 53. We are in the central portion of this unit that begins in Isaiah 52.13 to 53.12. And the structure of 1 through 10 is as follows, and we're going to be looking at the bold section right in the middle, which is the, the kind of the hinge which captures the tribulation of this servant unto his triumph, his exaltation. The servant's divine human nature and homeliness, 
the servant's experience of suffering, the substitutionary nature of the servant's suffering, the, this, his dying for others, the servant's humble response to his suffering, and then the human and divine perspective on this suffering. We're going to be looking today, beginning in verse 4. We start out with, I think, the thesis statement for these three verses. Surely, the arm of the Lord, this servant, soon to be recognized as king, this person has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Our griefs, our sorrows. Look with me up at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Yet that acquaintance with sorrow, that connection with grief, was ultimately not his own, not due to his own being, it was, according to verse 4, our griefs he was bearing, our sorrows he was carrying. And yet the perspective, it says at the end of verse 4, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. There's an incompleteness about this perspective and I wonder if, if the thought is, is kind of like how Job's three friends looked at him. Like, it, it, this must be because of his sin, his own problem. Was this man born blind, the disciples said in John 9, because of his sin or because of his parents' sin? And Jesus said, neither but in order that God might be glorified in this moment through this, this massive healing. An incomplete human perspective. God smote him. Now I say incomplete because when we get down to verse 10, we're going to see that's actually the right perspective. It was the Lord's will to crush the Son. This isn't happening by chance. This is happening in the ultimate purpose of God. Who, Revelation 13, 8, before the foundation of the world had people's names written in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. That the purpose of God stretches, purpose of God in redemption was already in his mind before Adam sinned. That the brokenness of this world was part of His purpose for magnifying His Son as the healer of such brokenness, as the overcomer of such pain. And yet, there's a sense of contrast here because we esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, but He was wounded not for His sin, but for ours, it says. This is God's perspective 
He was punished for us, wounded for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. So we get to celebrate the very, the very heart of the cross work this morning. So to that end, let's pray. Father, we, we come now as a united body of saved sinners wanting to celebrate more the work of Christ on our behalf. Overcome resistance in our souls. Help us to feel appropriately about the texts that we are about to observe and understand and evaluate. These verses filled with words put together in order to communicate to us, you, the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who said, let light shine into darkness, you have spoken. Move us today, I pray. Move us to praise. The one who has sprinkled us in order to cleanse us. The one who has, through his chastisement, brought us peace. Peace with you. You've purchased peace for marriages. You've purchased the opportunity for a world of darkness and chaos to experience light and life. So be a stability in this room today and magnify the work of your Son. For his glory I pray. Amen. Let's start at the end. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. It says all we like sheep. Well, that we seems to be similar to our griefs our sorrows, that he's talking about a, a, a collective group here. And the clearest identification I have is, is 53.1 when he says, who's believed what he's heard from us? That the us and the we and the our are somehow all the same group. So that when he says... He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. By his stripes we are healed. He's not talking about universalism. Isaiah's words don't work for everyone on the planet. Because not everyone enjoys this peace. Not everyone's wounds are healed. Not everyone is standing reconciled with God and sprinkled cleansed. 
What I'm, what I'm suggesting is it seems as though there is, in this text, particular redemption in mind. That the group that was rejected by the majority of Jews, that's how, how we, we saw Paul and John using Isaiah 53 in John 12, 38 and Romans 10, 16, Isaiah 53, 1, who has believed what he heard from us. And that us refers to this remnant of faithful who have had ears to hear and eyes to see. This morning as Pastor Stephen was talking, I was thinking about Isaiah and In what way do we need children with disabilities? He said we need them. And I think he's right. He connected it to our own neediness. And I just, I just want us to feel that the imagery of adopting Orphans and gaining a new father works because there's orphans in the world. That God's able to use a cursed state where a mom and or a dad are gone, He can use that for His good in order to teach people of their own neediness that I have something that's like that person. In my own need and spiritual state. In this book, the common spiritual metaphor for disability, spiritual disability is eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear. If you have never met someone who's deaf or blind, you have no framework for such an idea. But all of a sudden, I mean, the day is coming and it may not be far away when it's only in the context of the church where you're going to find people with Down syndrome. It's possible and even likely that my two brothers who were adopted through foster care by my parents, both of whom had Down syndrome, had they been born in the 2000 teens, would have never entered into foster care because they would have never made it out of the womb. And yet they come into my home and they provide need for me. I needed them as a brother in order to be reminded and have a framework for what brokenness is. And yet into that brokenness comes amazing joy. My two brothers filled with joy. One of them died 24 years ago, but I remember the joy in him. The other brother, still alive, one year younger than me, and he loves Jesus. Yet his very life provides a framework for language that the Bible uses for disability. That, that covers all mankind. It, we, we need that. Oh, we need that in our world. We need the disability in our world to remind us of deeper realities. And the beauty is that what Jesus does, and we're going to see this today, and it's just so, so awesome. 
that what Jesus does at the cross is not only purchase healing for spiritual disability, he purchases healing for physical disability. And we're going to see it right in the text. Can I just uh, do a slight tangent on what you said? Uh, yeah. About a month ago, Liz and I had some responsibilities during the first service, so we attended the second service. And um, the Berkman's son was baptized. Kyle. Um, that he ministered to us his, his joy in Jesus was so evident it was not um, there was no doubt that he just was rejoicing in Jesus and his testimony his gospel testimony was clear it was simple but clear and he, he just ministered uh, in my in that service and most of you here probably missed it I love it. Thank you. Before you went to that, you were talking about this is not universalism. Yes. So maybe that's what you're going to unpack for us, but eager to understand then who are the we all and us all of this passage. The, yes, so the question is, well, who are the all we like sheep? Yes. And the Lord's laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the, there is a very realness about the fact that Jesus died for all. But he didn't die for all the same way. And... But who is he talking about here? Yeah. So, so within Isaiah, when he, so the, this first person plural, whether it's our or we or us, it's that, it's the end of Isaiah 53.1, or sorry, the, the end of the first line, when he said, who has, be, who has believed what he heard from us? That first person plural, that us suggests that he's part of this group, but he's also talking about others like him who have had an experience with God, who have ears to hear and eyes to see, and are actually um, part of the proclaimers of the good news that is being rejected in Jesus' day by the Jews themselves. Where... So is there, is there an essential... That I'm not, I'm not certain of, and I don't think so. Uh, that the, even though the earliest proclaimers of the gospel were themselves Jews, people like John and Paul, Christ started by reestablishing 12 individuals around him, whom we could go to certain texts, but appear to be reconstituting the 12 tribes of Israel. As if this is the, a new creation, a new Israel is being established, and then from them, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, you have this expansion of that new Israel in Christ, who is Israel, according to Isaiah 49, 
Those that are in him become a new people of God. And yet, the witnesses, you'll remember in Isaiah 52, there was the one whose feet are beautiful. How beautiful are the, on the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news. And he's coming from the battle and he's coming to the city. And he's bringing good news. He's the messenger of good news. And then it says the watchmen are there. And the watchmen see the messenger, see the singular messenger, and then the watchmen, plural, take up the message and begin to proclaim it to others, declaring the good news. And we've noted how the servant, in Isaiah 40 through 53, that language of servant, shows up 20 times, always in the singular. Sometimes it's the singular servant people who have eyes to see, who don't have ears to hear or eyes to see. They are rebellious in heart and imprisoned in soul. So that blindness and hardness is portrayed metaphorically as they're imprisoned. And then there's the servant person who is without sin, who represents God fully. Upon him is the Spirit of God. He's on a mission that's pointed. His words are like a sword that pierces. He was called from the womb. His name is Israel. And his role is not only to redeem the people of Israel, the servant person whose name is Israel has the responsibility to save Israel the people, but not only Israel, the people. It's too light a thing that he would only save them. God would make him a light and a covenant for all the nations. So, it sets us up for understanding that when the messenger shows up, who I think is the Christ, with the good news, and the witnesses, that is the um, watchers, the watchmen who are ready, hear it, they take up his, his calling, and then from Isaiah 54 to 65, servants shows up always in the plural, never in the singular, and it refers to those who are now identified with the servant. That at Isaiah 53, a new people are birthed. And that people includes a people of proclaiming, proclaimers. Who are not limited to just the Jews. So that we see, just as the framework, the passage opens in Isaiah 52 14 and 15, using the language of the many. Just as many as were astonished, so many nations will be sprinkled. And I don't think those many nations, this morning I, as I was pondering this, those many nations don't mean every other nations other than the Jews. It could mean many nations including the Jews. And that the us is broad enough at this point to at least make us wonder is the us limited to only Jews? We, all we like sheep, have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, and yet now we are, all, we're, we're saved in him, that it's, I think the passage is broad enough, and it's actually leading us to understanding that those who are impacted, and that the we and the us is broader to include not only prophets, for example, but even those from the many nations 
who too take up the call, surrender to the king, and begin to proclaim the good news. That when we get to verse 11, it's that this group, we and us and our, is all of a sudden, I think, going to be localized in the offspring that, that the servant dies for. Right. So there were those in Jesus' audience who said they believed, John 2, well, who said they believed, yet John 2, but Jesus would not disclose himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. So there's faith in John's gospel, and then there's faith in John's gospel. And the, the ultimate faith is the kind that we're talking about that is identified with Christ's sheep. And he says, I have sheep who hear my voice, who follow me, who know me. I give them eternal life and, and they will never perish. That's John 6. No, that's John 10. And just before that, he said, I have sheep that are not of this fold. So he's, it's, it, I think it's broader than that. And when we get, so he's going to identify this servant is going to die and that death is going to be motivated. He's going to persevere through that hard time because he sees something that's coming that, that's going to satisfy his soul and that's an offspring. And when we get then to move from Isaiah 53 into Isaiah 54, in the very first four verses, we're going to find out that the offspring for which this servant died, are, they're supposed to live in a tent that's bigger, stretch out that tent because the offspring will now possess the nations. That, so so I'm, that's, that's kind of where I'm seeing this we and our go. That it, it's not, when, when Isaiah's saying it, he's not specifically talking about his, everyone in his audience who has no eyes and no ears. It's a specific subset because his audience is among those who this subset proclaims and they don't listen. That's the majority of his audience. And so, so again, we're seeing in Isaiah a message, a book that's written less for his contemporaries and more for a redeemed few that are part of the us, the we, the all. So if Isaiah... Some, some Gentiles. Why could no one in Isaiah's time see that he was talking about some Gentiles? Well, we don't know that no one else could, but we know that they were blinded. And what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.14 is that when they would read Moses, which I think is shorthand for all the Old Covenant material, when they would read Moses, a veil remained over their eyes because only in Christ is that veil taken away. So what Christ does in his coming is provide light that enlightens dark souls 
distant eyes, disabled sight. He enlightens so that we can see what was there all the while, and he provides the lens through which we look to read it in a way that magnifies his work. All we like sheep. So that's how I'm understanding this we. And it says we've gone astray. Very literally, we've erred. An error has happened. We've gone in, the, in, a, in a contrary direction. Here's Jeremiah. My people, Old Covenant community, have been lost sheep. They're shepherds. Same word for pastors. Same exact word as we see in Ephesians 4.11. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill they have gone. They've forgotten their fold. They've departed from their primary home and now they're worshiping other gods at other high places. Here's Ezekiel. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. This is what a shepherd is supposed to do. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. You weren't operating like a shepherd. They became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. That's shorthand for the the high places that they would worship at and engage in idolatry. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. That's the language that, that is similar to what we're seeing here. All we like sheep have gone astray. And yet, God... Yahweh lays upon him. So yes, he is smitten by God and afflicted. Yes, it was Yahweh who laid upon him this punishment. But it wasn't for his sake. It was for ours. It was our iniquity. And it's supposed to move us to stand in awe. Our transgressions, our iniquities, that's what we read here. Surely he's borne our griefs, our sorrows, Our transgressions, verse 5, is why He was wounded. Our iniquities is why He was crushed. So those are two words that are directly related with sin. Transgression is about not keeping specific law. You can have sin without transgression. Because sometimes there isn't specific revealed law that you're actually breaking. And yet it still is not living for the glory of God. So Paul talks about in Romans 5 how there was sin before there was transgression. On Christ is laid all the transgressions, that is violations of specific laws, and every other form of iniquity. Our punishment is placed upon Him. Now what do we know? With respect to transgression and iniquity, we know that every person actually sins. That once you come out of the womb, before, you've, before that time, you've neither done good or bad. 
But every person, once they come out of the womb, moves towards sin. There's an awakening that comes of an awareness of what is right and what is wrong. And so much of that is supposed to happen through moms and dads setting boundaries. So in my home, we just building off of something Ted Tripp had said in Shepherding the Child's Heart, he has this image of children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. Those two, obey and honor. And it becomes the boundaries of this circle, a circle of blessing. And so long as you stay within it, obeying and honoring, you know blessing. All is well. It's when you, you get outside of that circle failing to honor, failing to obey, that all of a sudden, discipline comes. Every one of us, Paul says, there is none who are righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. He's just broad-sweeping statements. But this here, I think, I think is broader than the we that we're reading about in our text. Because all we like sheep have gone astray, that's true. But then when it says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, at one sense that could be true. But when it says, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, that's where that's not true for everyone. Good news enters in. How lovely on the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, announcing peace, proclaiming words of happiness, declaring, our God reigns. The opportunity for peace is presented to everyone. God loved the world that He gave His Son, His only Son, His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish. But if you don't believe, if that condition is not met, a surrendered heart, then there's no way out of the perishing. So the very last verse of John 3 says, those who do not obey the Son, upon them the wrath of God remains. It's not that, well, you, you, were, you had a clean slate and all of a sudden Jesus is presented and now you have a choice to make. But rather, you are born, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.3, as children or objects of God's wrath. Everyone. And that's, that's what... At one level, we can say all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I think Paul's just talking about the reality. I think he's talking here about genuine failures to live for God's glory. We live for our own glory. Our own self-reliance. Our own self-exaltation. And yet, culpability is broader than my personal sinning. My culpability actually goes back before I ever do anything wrong. It reaches back all the way to my conception. Because we are guilty in Adam. Under God. Under His wrath from the beginning. Isaiah said, Your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. The first father? Who's that? Adam. 
He sinned, and everything after him has been influenced negatively. So that we are, we are in this world, we are born apart from Christ, having all of our being infected and affected by the reality of sin. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But if you do not obey the Son, you shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked and were by nature children of wrath. By nature. Every single being. Even before you come out of the womb. By nature. Children of wrath. The mediators, good question. So the, who are the mediators? Your mediators transgressed against me. I think we're talking about the priests who would stand between God and the people. They would come to the priests. And yet what's happened is, um, as it says in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 4, the priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. Zephaniah 3, verse 4. So these, the priests are supposed to be standing as mediators. So that's the same imagery that we have in the New Testament. When it talks about Jesus as the mediator, it's a priestly mediator. Standing between God and men. And it's his blood that... So he operates as the priest, he operates as the sacrifice, and throw it in, he's even the temple. He's just, he, he's that, but he's in the center, and it's only through him that we have fellowship. And so here, I think it's their priestly mediators violated, didn't treat God as holy when he was holy, and, and in doing so, they led the rest of the people astray. Just an observation, uh, and if, well, just an observation. Um, we are uh, children of wrath, I mean, born by nature, children of wrath. At the same time, we're created in God's image. I mean, that strikes me as just a remarkable uh, way we can identify with what Christ did for us because he was, he was God. He was God's image. He was God. And he, you know, and he became a child of wrath in a sense, well, in a very real sense. I, mean, I just find that really fascinating that uh, I, I don't know how to articulate what I'm saying, but it, it's like this parallel. And then I think along with that, um, if the um, mediators transgressed against God, uh, the priests, I mean, we see that repeating now too in the, in the era post-Christ or of Christ where, you know, there, is, there are a lot of, of, uh, of uh, 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 what do I want to say? Uh, Churches, if you will, and I don't, but churches that are uh, that are leading people astray. They're, they're they're the same ones who are not seeing, not hearing. I mean, there's so much that just keeps cycling back through, and and it just and, and I, as I said last time, it just makes it so remarkable that Christ has taken us out of that cycle. I mean, and redeemed us. I mean, that's just extraordinary. Brother Mike. Yeah. The, I, I guess I was uh, thinking as you're going through that that you know Christ died for the righteous and the unrighteous. Mm -hmm. No man can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. Mm -hmm. So does God reveal Himself 
to all men or draw all men to himself that some accept, some reject. And I guess the second question that I have regarding the sin nature born into sin, um, I think that's why the virgin birth is so important because the sin nature travels through the, the male. <clears throat> but how about people then or children who die at birth or before birth or whatever, are they dying with that sin nature uh, and then are they condemned to hell? Two big questions. The first was, um, does God draw all oh, in what way does God draw all men to himself and how does the human responsibility play into that that shit, that that movement, so that some reject and some accept. And then the other part of that would be what responsibility does man have in accepting that? Jesus said, "Behold, I stand at the door and knock." Right, right. If my voice then opens the door, yep. I will come in and sup with him and he with me. So, yeah. who is opening that door? What does that mean? Yep. And what is man's responsibility in? The- yeah, that's those are huge questions. So. Um, and then the, the second question, just dealing with the eternal destiny of children who die in infancy. And I will answer the second question first. If you, go, if you were to go to my website, jasonderoshi.com, I have a letter that I, I sent to one of my students who knew uh, he had heard my own story of how in my initial, in, in my, when my wife and I initially were struggling with infertility, how we journeyed the path of miscarriage and how the reality of alien guilt that's what we're talking about, an alien guilt, meaning I, I didn't sin and yet I'm still guilty in, in Adam. That that reality of alien guilt, believing that it's not just people who sin who need Jesus, it's sinners in Adam who need Jesus. That Jesus is the only Savior, that that conviction that, that Jesus is the only way to be saved and everyone, including conceived children who did never come out of the womb need Jesus, I didn't have a framework for understanding how, to, how any child could justly be in heaven until years later when when Romans 1 changed my view and Romans 1 does not say that certain people are not under God's wrath and other people are. Romans 1, 18 through 20 simply focuses on those who actually experience the judgment of God. And it's specifically those who suppress the truth. And I think Romans 1, 18 through 20 then opens the door for the possibility that a child who, is, who dies in infancy, because they themselves, though culpable 
and under God's wrath in Adam, never themselves consciously violated, failed to glorify God in their body, that that shit, that, that, that right there opens the door for them to actually, upon their first sight of the reigning Christ, submit themselves to that Savior for an eternal destiny of life. We have to have a framework if we're wrestling with how is it that children who die in infancy could be in heaven. We have to have a framework, I think, that does not deny their culpability in Adam and yet that understands that Romans 1, 18-20 specifically says that the wrath of God is poured upon those who suppress the truth. So it, it seems to me that, that that allows me then to affirm the elder affirmation of faith, which says that young children and those with mental disabilities who die may indeed, and I think it is likely, indeed, are in heaven forever and will be with us on the new earth forever. You can go to my website and just type in child or death and pick up that letter where I walk through all of the biblical data that I'm aware of that gives clarity to why I hold the position I hold. The first question relates to personal responsibility, and I'll just draw attention to two texts. One, 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul says, that if the gospel is proclaimed and it's rejected, it's because those people have been blinded by the prince of this world who keeps them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Yet the God who said, let light shine into darkness, that God has shown into our hearts and given us the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So you've got a group that is blinded from that, and yet, and then Paul says, I want to frame why it is that some see and others don't see. He puts it in the context of creation. When all there was was darkness, there was no light there, no glimmer, no life, and he just says, Lazarus, come forth, and out of that tomb comes a dead man. One who was actually dead. And that would be the second text I'd go to is, is not John 11, but Ephesians chapter 2, when it says, you were dead, but God. You were dead, but God. That what Paul does, he doesn't deny the need for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and how will they call if they're never told? And how will they be told if someone doesn't preach to them? And how will someone preach to them if they're never sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. He doesn't deny that need for the word. How did you believe? If not, you were born again through the living word of God. That's how it happened. An awakening. Did you receive the Spirit by works of law or by hearing with faith? Galatians chapter 3, verse 2. It was by hearing with faith. That's how I, by hearing with faith. And yet, when it, comes, when it comes to the decisive, the decisive movement as to what, where does faith come from, no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws them. 
And everyone who comes to God has been taught by God. And if you haven't come, you were never drawn. That, that, so we could, we could look at more texts, um, even John chapter 6, which I think just definitively clarifies why it is that Judas went the way he did, why he didn't believe, because God didn't give him that belief. But it doesn't minimize the responsibility that if someone begins to feel that awakening in their soul, run with it. You're going to be held responsible for that, to to run in the right direction. Um, And yet, in the end, God has set it up so that when we run, never can we at any point say, wow, I did a great job. We can say, I worked harder than any any of them, but it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Somehow, it's all framed so that God will ultimately get all the glory. That's what I mean by he's the decisive mover, but not the soul mover. The decisive mover that moves us from darkness to light, from deadness to life. Let's keep looking here. What does it say Christ underwent on our behalf? Back in Isaiah 53. He was... Pierced. That's specific language. This is one of those predictions that make us stand in awe. He wasn't stoned for our redemption. He didn't fall off a mountain for our redemption, get captured by a bunch of angels like the devil wanted him to do. He was pierced. Pierced, it says. For our sins. Psalm 22, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. All four Gospels apply Psalm 22 to the moments of Christ's passion, His suffering, moving to the cross. Dogs encompass me. That's what He calls the Jews and the Gentiles who are crucifying him. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, says Zechariah, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, this shepherd who has been rejected by his sheep. Zechariah Chapter 11 goes there, clarifies that the one we're talking about is this shepherd who will be rejected, and he's been appointed by God as the shepherd of the people, yet they reject him. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then in 13.1 it says, it's in through this means. Did I write it down? No. Through this means of his being pierced, that people's sins are cleansed. That's the way it happens, according to Zechariah 13.1. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Second thing we see here. With his wounds, in other places in the Old Testament, this same term is, is translated bruises or slashes. 
in the beginning of Isaiah chapter 1, we actually read this exact word when it says, From the sole of your foot, Israel, to the top of your head, there is no soundness but bruises and sores and raw wounds. It's a portrayal of their spiritual state. And he takes on those bruises upon himself. From the, oh, there it is. Isaiah 1. Pilate released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him over to be crucified. Every blow, every blow for us. He took Jesus, flogged him. Notice in this text, two sides. Now, there's, this word here is a big word that's not a common term out in the city, but it's a regular term that Christians use. We call it The language is imputation. What does it mean to impute something? It means to count it, to reckon it. And you can either reckon something for what it actually is or reckon something in spite of what it is. And when we look at Jesus' work, we see God not reckoning us for who we are. But reckoning Jesus in light of who we are. So that there's, we call this negative imputation, and it's all with respect to, from the perspective of the human, what is pulled away from us, that's that's negative versus positive is what's put, given to us. So negative versus positive imputation, Christ's punishment was for our faults. Our guilt is removed from us and imputed to Him, counted to Him, even though He Himself was blameless. Whereas His blamelessness is then counted as if it were ours, even though we are guilty. God reckons us for what we are not. That's the essence of the gospel. We call it the great exchange. The peace and healing... Christ should have known became our peace and healing, whereas the punishment that we should have received became His. He's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. We went astray, but He carried the iniquity of us all. Versus, His chastisement brought us peace. With His wounds, we receive healing. He was the unblemished Lamb. And then all of his unblemishness, he becomes the substitute so that our guilt is placed on him. We couldn't have stood as a substitute for anyone else. In his unblemishness, his unblemishness is counted as ours and and and, and our blemishness, our sin, our rebellion, our hardness is all placed on him and God justly takes him to the cross. Full substitution brings spiritual healing. We were in spiritual animosity to God, separate from Him. And what Jesus does is actually rescues us from the grips and imprisonment of the devil. He's no longer the one who holds us in His grip. Instead, we're in the grip of the Son and of His Father. Jesus our Lord was delivered up for our trespasses. I think Paul's got 
Isaiah 53, right in his mind. He was raised for our righteousness, our justification. We're going to see when we get to Isaiah 53, 11, he accounts, he, the righteous one, accounts many, many nations sprinkled by his blood, accounts many righteous. That's, that's the same word that we're looking at here. He was delivered. Jesus, our Lord, was delivered up. Was delivered by whom? Acts 4 says, in this very city, Pontius Pilate, Herod, the leaders of the Jews, the Gentiles, did what God's purpose, what God's foreknowledge and purpose predestined to occur. God gave him over for our sake. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. He was blameless, but God made him sin. So that it's like a serpent. The serpent is the ultimate picture of evil and curse. That's what was slithering around in Numbers 21, biting all the people, reminding them of the seriousness. They're engaging in the curse. The the serpent himself has come upon them. And then, like a slain beast, Moses shapes a gold mold of this serpent, raises him up on a pole, and like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, identifying the death of the curse. So Jesus became like that. He became a curse. He became, he he bore all that was identified with the serpent at the cross. That's where we were, underneath You think Abraham is your father? I tell you, you are children of the devil and you look like your dad. And Jesus took all that upon himself. He became sin itself at the cross in order that in him, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange. Christ Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin. Notice, it's not only for our justification, He died for our sanctification. He died that we wouldn't stay who we were, but increasingly fight sin, increasingly look more like Him. That there's power in the cross to overcome bitterness and laziness and idleness. Power in the cross to overcome hard-heartedness and struggle with gossip, proneness to sexual immorality, lust with the heart, lust with the eyes. There's power in the cross for that. He died that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you've been healed. That's that's citing exactly our text. At the end of verse 5, with His stripes, with His wounds, we're healed. Every blow so that we could have freedom, spiritual freedom, no longer bound as a slave to sin. You were straying like sheep, church, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here's where we end. And you might not expect this, but look at Isaiah 53 verse 4. 
He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And we read that and we say, well, this is about fixing eternal suffering, right? Relieving eternal suffering. We want people to be right with God so that they can not burn forever. What about physical healing? Look at Matthew. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word. He healed all who were sick. He, we're talking about people who, who couldn't see with their eyes. People who had chromosomal imbalances. People who had bad backs. People who stuttered. People who couldn't hear. People who had irregular heart tremors, internal bleeding problems, those who were struggling with the influence of external demonic spirits. These are practical, everyday realities. And then it says, why did he heal all who were sick? Why did he cast out the spirits? This was to fulfill. Hear that. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. What does that mean? It means that healing is blood-bought. It's not just about the power of God. It's about the curse being overcome from the power of the cross. Jesus purchased physical healing, mental stability chemical balance, everything that's been thwarted by the curse, he purchased to restore it, to, to make it level. Now, I just want to add, he died, and I've talked about this in the past, he died to set prisoners free. And whether it's blindness or deafness? Why did Jesus have that kind of a ministry? It was to point to things. He healed the blind man, and then we learn in the very next chapter, the blind man is coming back, and God says, see. Jesus says, see. And what does he see with his eyes of faith that Jesus is the king? That the physical healings were pointers to deeper realities. And Jesus died to bring about both. And eternity, this suggests, is going to be made up of people with whole bodies, not broken ones. And that's, that's a beautiful promise. But notice, whether you're imprisoned in a demonized state or whether you're sitting in jail, you're wondering, are you the one, Jesus? And out of the context of physical prison, John the Baptist sent his, his, his uh, disciples to Jesus and said, are you the one, cuz? And what does Jesus say? Go, tell John what you hear and what you see. There's Isaiah. Now notice what he says. John, 
The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Am I the one? What did Isaiah say was coming? Not just physical recovery, sorry, not just spiritual sight, not just spiritual healing. The tangible evidence that Jesus was the one is that physical sight, physical hearing was being given. Go back and tell them, tell him what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. That's Isaiah 61, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49. And then he says this to John, blessed are those, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And not offended, I think he's talking to John the Baptist, who's still in prison. I think he's saying, John, I came and I'm giving proof. But in giving proof, I'm not bringing complete healing to everyone and I'm not freeing everyone from prison. But I gave enough proof to let you hope in the fact that in the resurrection, it's coming for everyone. And blessed are those who, like you, John, persevere even unto death. It could be the cancer that brings it. It could be the prison guard that brings it. Blessed are those who are not offended by me, but continue to hope and trust and believe that I am the one. So when we come to texts like this one, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. We pray. Call upon the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save. That word is the word for heal. It will heal him. And I believe that is true. And sometimes Jesus allows the future reality that he died to bring to be brought into the present and people receive healing. Whether in a miraculous moment or through doctors and medicine, it's all blood-bought. And therefore we say, thanks be to God. Thanks be to Christ who died to make this happen. But there are others for whom that future reality that is promised, that we, we look to, that we believe in, that Jesus died to bring, there's others for whom it is only future. And he says, will you suffer and not be offended by me, but continue to trust that I'm the one? And we keep praying because we don't know whom he's going to immediately bring healing to and whom he won't, whom he will allow to continue through their suffering to be a sustained reminder of, of all of our neediness. Blessed are those who are not offended. It is temporary, that's right. Lazarus still died. That's right. That's, that's a great reminder. It's still merely a picture. So may we be among those who are not offended, but believe he's the one. Jesus, thank you for substitution. 
you're all in for us and you have let us be all in to you. Thank you for bearing our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, and securing us peace. Securing us healing. Help us hope in you and trust in your timing. Confident that full life and full freedom from sin and full freedom from pain has been purchased and is ours already. Let us rest in such hope today as we celebrate who you are for us. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.